Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Paul Andrews. Now, Paul is a former Essex police officer and now works for Colchester Borough Council or City Council. I don't know what they are now. Um, when I was a kid, it was a town and it's it's grown significantly. But Paul, thanks ever so much for joining us today. Um, now, Paul, you joined the police service um, and you served for 25 years, if I remember rightly. Yeah, about that. Yeah, 25 where did it all begin for you, though? What What is Paul Andrews all about? Where did you come from and, and what made you join the police service? So I grew up in uh, all the villages around Malden, really. So Wood and Water, Wood and Mortimer, Hopi Basin, eventually. And um, 14 years, I was at boarding school um, from 12 years old until I was 16. But um, I used to come home um, from boarding school and there was a little farm down the road. And I used to work at the farm from about 14 years old uh, onwards and uh, was rich because I used to do potato picking there. And uh, as, as a young man with a strong back, I could I could pick a lot of potatoes in one day and you got paid by the bag. So um, that got me, got me going there, really. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living. Um, I'd had an accident at school when I was 16 where I basically blew myself up with a gas cylinder. <laughs> and... Um, we were preparing for a camping trip and uh, lads being lads, we thought that we could pierce the top of the gas cylinder and make a flamethrower out of it, not realising that the gas actually escaped all in one go and three of us blew ourselves up. So I was in hospital for about a month. No! I was in that hospital for about a month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I melted my hand completely because I was holding the match. How funny um, is that? So I didn't do any qualifications at all. Um, I did some CSEs, if anybody remembers them. Um, but I didn't do any O-levels at all. And uh, literally left with no qualifications. And uh, the best expression is I probably bummed around for quite a few years when I left school. But I look back on that now and look at people who join the Essex Police now and I think to myself that that bumming around actually taught me plumbing, bricklaying, how to build boats, how to sail a boat, how to maintain a boat. I work because I'm down at Habers Base and I worked on the boats quite a lot. So I learned an awful lot of sort of your normal DIY skills really welding everything really so i really appreciated in that first sort of five or six years not getting a steady job really and just just going out and doing everything that was available really and, and not earning a lot of money out of it but learning an awful lot of basic life skills um so i really appreciated that um and then i got quite lucky really where i got offered a job um an electronics company it was brand spanking new a startup managed to get a job there um, and we basically manufactured door entry systems for blocks of flats. We um, manufactured for every single council in the country, including Scotland, really. And we absolutely had the market sewn up, really. And, and the company grew so very quickly. And, and that's when I basically uh, moved the company to Colchester. And then I moved to Colchester as well to follow the company. Um, that went really, really well. Um, we were, well, I say, we just um, we just had the whole country sewn up. 
Uh, I got offered a management managerial post after about a month and a half, and I basically went into management of the company. So I did everything from uh, distribution to packaging to manufacture to purchasing. Again, huge amount of skills learned through that um, in relation to that company. And then we started, as I say, we saturated the market, unfortunately. And then after about nine years, we suddenly realised that we weren't diversifying and, and the councils were not spending money anymore. And we had basically, we'd, we'd made so much equipment and there was nowhere else to sell it. Right. So we, um, I, I went to the directors and said, look, you know, I could see that the, the bottom line was going down every month and we weren't diversifying. And so that's fine. It'll all pick up again. We'll be fine. It's not going to pick up again. So I was home with my uh, wife at that point and um, the newspaper was on the table and there was big literally a whole um, side of advertising for Essex Police. Never dreamed of being a police officer in a million years. But I picked the paper up, had a look at it, I thought, can't do any harm, can it? Uh, 12, 12 weeks later, I was in. Wow. Um, I don't know if you remember, 1996, I think was the period when they switched over from rent allowance to out-of-lease, out-of-south-east allowance, was it, I think? So what I'd be doing is we're holding off employing people so they could get them onto that new, you know, financial um, uh, incentive. Um, so they held off and held off, and we had a massive intake at that point in time. And we have, I went to train at Weathersfield um, because I just didn't have the facilities anywhere else, and we we trained out of there. Um, and then I did about four weeks at Shotley, I think. Um, yeah, that, that, that was pretty much get, get got me to Essex Police. Um, yeah. I still, uh, after 12 weeks of leaving the, the previous job and joining the police, thinking, what have I done? How did this come to be? I had no idea what had happened, really. <laughs> Why? Did you did you um, enjoy the training and, and the, the, the experience? Yeah, it was very, very, it's not like it is nowadays. There was no marching around or anything like that. We, it was very, very lax. And I think actually we had a really good time, to be fair with you. And, you know, <laughs> isn't it? We had um, Joe... Um, Joe Wrigley. Joe Wrigley and um, um, Coombs. No, hey. Coombs. Oh. Adrian was the trainer. I think he's name in a minute, really. But yeah, two, two really good trainers, really. Um and uh, yeah, it, it was a good time, you know, and, and we learned a lot and, you know, you, you, you picked up on all, all the knowledge base, really. But then you were dumped in the, the deep end, weren't you, really, on the response team. And um, Wethersfield's not far from home, is it? So you could at least no. get back at weekends and things like that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. When, when you did your um, probationer training, did you have any desires to go into any particular departments or undertake any particular roles? Not initially, although probably I reckon six months in, I made a decision really what I always wanted to be was a beat officer, really. Not driving around a response car like everybody else was wanting to do. I wanted to get out there on foot really and, and um, engage with the public. Um, so that was my aim. And my second aim really was after about nine months, I always wanted to get uh, become a search officer. Um, I don't know why I think I've got a little bit of uh, my organisational skills are blow my own trumpet here a second to none really and I love the idea really of that um, systematic method of searching really that suited me really so that was my two aim beat officer and um, search officer Fantastic and you achieved both of those mm. I, The beat officer for me is um, one of the unsung heroes of the British Police Service and the reason I say that 
is that policing is in the community. Every type of crime, irrespective of what the crime is, commences in a community. Was it be a fraud or right the way through to murders, everything happens. And if we had those community people working, sworn officers out there day, day in, day out, dealing with the locals, I know we've got PCSOs and I'm not decrying what they do, but to have a sworn officer that can go and carry out arrests and gain that extra intelligence is invaluable. And certainly when I was on major investigations, if we had a murder, the first people we would go to were the community support team. Yeah. You know the community officers because they knew everybody in that they they would know every little argument that had taken place or mm. any, any bit of gossip or where we could turn to well i've got a good story around that actually so when you know jumping forward a little bit to 2013 when they disbanded house and police station which is where i ended up as a beat officer yeah basically um they moved us all to braintree and shut house down completely um i was over there on about day three, I think, and I heard this flapping over the radio, really, about this young lad who'd gone missing in Halstead. Um, and they were, they were calling in troops from all over the all over the county to come and search for him. And I went, it'd be, it'd be around at Wiles Avenue. You know, I'm, I'm making the, the figures. 121 Wiles Avenue, be around there. And um, so I'm listening to more flapping on the radio, and I, and I called up and I said, I'll go and get him if you like, I know where he is. They said, well, how do you know where he is? And I said, well, I worked there for sort of 15 years, you know, and I know where he'll be. So I got in the car, drove down, then knocked on the door, and there he is smoking cannabis in the front room with all his mates. I grabbed him and took him home to mum and dad. And that's what they lost. They lost all of that knowledge that we had in that area, really, where we knew absolutely everybody that was worth knowing about. We knew where they'd be at any point in time in the day, pretty much on a daily basis, really. Uh, and we've lost all of that. That's really frustrating. Yeah, it's frustrating. It, it, and mm. as a member of the public, it's frustrating as well. Mm. Because we've seen it from both sides. And you're absolutely right. I think what has happened in time is that people that wanted to get promoted changed things. And by yep. cha change, they looked at you and they'd say, oh, do you know what? He hasn't had as many detections out there or there haven't been as many calls in Housted. But they didn't think, well, there's only two people working Housted or three or whatever it was. Mm. It was relative. You could get on with your community stuff, and now it costs them more money to send people there and back because they're going from Braintree all the time. Yeah, There's of no, course. No yeah. physical cover. Yeah, and when you know you talk about detections, you know, and and um, and counting arrests, you know, quite often because we knew everybody, we knew if it was Joe Bloggs and we and he was wanted for a theft from a shop and everything, yeah, it'd be going nick him. No, I'm not going to go and nick him. So you go around there and say. Oh, hello, Mum. Um, Joe's been stealing from the shop again. Can you bring him in a, an hour's time? We'll have an interview down at the police station, really. And he'd be in and out, or, or he'd admit all his offences, and he'd be gone. What, why drag him over to Braintree for four hours and, and sit in custody for that? He didn't need to do it, really. So we done it on a regular basis. But you, you knew the person, so you knew who you could get away with for doing that. And you knew who you actually had to bring in, um, you know, and get him off the street. But obviously, if there's a the chance of losing evidence out of it, really, you would nick and, and bring him in. But most of the time, you could go around there and there'd be his woolly jumper on his nicks. He'd be wearing it or something. Yeah. But but you you were able to give him the, the figurative clip around the ear, which mm. is now now lost. I mean, you I, saw your time out in sort of the Braintree Housestead area, didn't you? Were you did you do? No. So i go just go back a little bit then. So about 1998, I got about two years in, a, a new chief inspector started at, uh, cult, at um, Colchester, and she came over to where I was at Shrub End at that point in time. Oh, I see. Uh, so so we, we actually, um, back in 1998-ish, around there, a bit, maybe a bit later, actually trialled the first time having a bespoke response team 
that only responded to blue light jobs and another team that worked out of Colchester that responded to all of the um, sort of the, you know, the, the, the knob blue light, um, which worked quite well, you know, but there was occasions when there weren't any blue light jobs coming in. But what we do is we pick up a speed camera and we go out there and, and, and do a few speed traps and things. Um, and this chief inspector came over and she said, Paul, what do you want to do? You know, what's your career? I said, all I want to do is I want to become a search officer. Um, uh, and at some point in time, once I've sort of covered the aspect that I'm doing at the moment, which is as a response officer, once I've finished that, I want to go be a beat officer. So she said, well, there's a search course coming up soon. Do you want to get on it? I said, absolutely, yeah. So she put me forward for it and I got that search course. Um, so that was 2001. Uh, I did my search course um, with Julian Hallam, if you remember Julian. Yeah, 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 yeah. I joined yeah. with him. Yeah, yeah. And um, I got to the end of the course. So I think it was the Friday afternoon. Well done, everyone. You've all passed. And by the way, you're all going off to Tilbury on Monday. And um, there's a big search over there. Uh, I didn't come back for nine months, 10 months. Daniel Jones? Uh, Daniel Jones, yeah. So basically, we spent 10 months over there. And we basically searched the entire fly tipping capital of the planet, which is Thurrock, um, really. And um, we, they were doing it in front of us. We were searching along, and they'd come up with a transit man, and it's the transit man inside the road. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's one thing I remember about it being um, fly chipping everywhere. Uh, yeah, so in 10 months over there, um, and we loved it, absolutely loved it, really. We, we had a purpose, really, you know, to find that young lady. And um, we were obviously very much involved. Yeah, it was a, a, probably the last of them jobs, really, where they threw everything at it, didn't they, really, money-wise, um, and, um, and, and and going through there. I don't know if you were involved in that at all, but it I was a... Kirk Campbell. I, yeah. I, I interviewed him when he first got arrested. Um, yeah. In fact, I've just done a, a film for Sky, which has just come out on Sky. It's the, uh, man, the real Manhunter uh, with Colin oh, Sutton. And it's a 90-minute episode, and it's it's brilliant. I, I would say it, wouldn't I? But it's brilliantly done. Um, there's another yeah. one on TV that I've taken part in, um, but it, it's brilliantly done, and it's very um, victim-focused. We we had Linda on there, and she was yeah. spoken to by Colin, and it was. Uh, but yeah, I worked on that right till the end. I, we did the disclosure as well, which was horrendous. Yeah. But um, yeah. but yeah, yeah, we we um, our, our our little team because I think we had. Four, four teams over there really and our team got to search his house really which took us about three to five days I think to do that and we know myself and I think it was Gemma um, we found the safe underneath the floor with all the photographs in it really yeah. and then obviously the guys were up in the loft finding uh, bits and pieces up there as well which started forming that picture of his mindset yeah, uh, yeah just just to yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah I was sort of trying to keep not say what we found really in case it's in the public domain so it's not it's yeah. not drama it's been used at court um and it's you know it's, it's used into um in television and thing is Stuart Campbell is trying to get parole and people need to know that he is what he is he's an absolute yeah. beast yeah absolutely and until he discloses where the body of Danielle Jones is even then, they shouldn't consider him coming out. But he's exactly. an absolute beast, and I enjoyed working the job. And but uh, and my my brother will tell you, it, it was draining, wasn't it? I mean, you you all know it was draining because every day, yeah. you'd gone from looking for a a miss a missing person, a person who could have been held captive, to you're looking for a body. Yeah. And and that was the reality. And so when we tipped yeah, up absolutely, yeah. briefings at Tilbury. Mm. We that was the, there was a cut off point where we thought well we're now looking for a body we're not looking for uh, 
you know, someone who's still alive. And that was hard. Yeah, absolutely. It? Yeah, of course it was, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and then you, you, you knew what the family were going through as well. Really. You just wanted to do your best to find um, Danielle for them. And that was my... It's all, always been for me about it because I went on to DVI later on in life as well. Disaster victim identification. And for me, it was all about closure and making sure that the family got closure out of it, really. Um, so... But did you, I presume you remember what happened two weeks into our searching, do you? Do you remember that? Oh, mate, so, moved on to the covert side by then. Yeah, so basically there was a footpath that ran through a wooded area. I think Stuart had been uh, logged going into that area for about 20 minutes. That came up as quite a viable search area, this big wooded area, next to Durox factory. And I had to, say, I had to think about saying that, the Durox factory. <laughs> 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 and, and we were um, we, there's a footpath um, like a farmer's road going through there and we were searching this quite steep bank um, along there and uh, we always work in pairs and I was working with a guy whose name I completely forgot at the moment but there's a big pile of tyres and one of the tyres had a box wedged in it and he picked up that tyre and he said oh, what do you think that is? I don't know wrapped in plastic bags so he popped the box out of there in this plastic bag and he took the top layer off of it and cops being cops basically and having a bit of a laugh we started playing past the parcel somebody started singing you could open the next layer of the box until they stopped singing so i opened the next layer of the box and that's still another layer underneath that as well and i passed it back and he took the last layer off and got to the actual box that was inside it and when he opened it up um, are we allowed to swear on here at all yeah of course you can because the words that came out of it oh fuck because we've just done our search course two weeks beforehand which is all about searching for IEDs and inside was the most perfect viable IED inside. No. A pipe bomb, uh, the remote control section of a, of a um, an airplane, a model airplane, uh, batteries, expanded polystyrene foam, and as the polystyrene foam had been set, they'd poured lead shot or something similar to that into the polystyrene spine to act as a shrapnel for it. We had a viable ID in our hands. Everything we'd learned two weeks before which was basically to leave it where you were, to get out of there, basically mark your route out so you could get back in. Went completely out of our minds. We literally just left and walked out of there. I then had to phone, well, I tried to phone Julian, couldn't get hold of him, and I phoned Heather Alston, if you remember Heather. Yeah, lovely, yeah. Um, also Pulsar. Hi, Heather, um, co-word is blah, blah, blah. Yes, but of course it is, yeah. No, 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 honestly, Heather, co-word, this is for a fine of an IED. Yeah, of course it is, Paul. So, however, we've got an IED and explained it. Oh, my God, she went. So, yeah, we did. And um, anyway, cut a long story short, we um, got um, EOD out who came down. They got the barrow stuck on the on the hill, first of all. Oh. That's to call another one out. The second barrow went down there, and I was very lucky to be allowed into the back of the vehicle and watch them doing the disruption of it and watch them pop it. Um, they did, did do a disruption on it. They fire a can of water into it. It blows the electrics apart scattered everything everywhere and then we spent three days after that searching for all the component parts of that IED um, to recover them so they could be rebuilt and um, put back together again. Um, as part of doing that um, we got all of our kit out of it because it poured with rain for three days so we got all of our decent search kit out of it because we were in normal you know remember the old normal black jackets you got yeah, yeah. after about two minutes in the rain you got soaking wet all the way through got all decent kit out of it from that um, and it turned out that that was the first, or it got put into the little book, the EOD run, and it was the first viable IED that had been built by Combat 18 in Harlow. And they, they reckon they were testing them out in that location. So um, that was a bit of an eye-opener, two weeks after the search course. 
you never took a parcel for granted ever again? No, absolutely not. You know, would you expect that to be in the middle of a tire in the middle of nowhere? No, you wouldn't. Of course not. And uh, But yeah, we were passing that backwards and forwards for two or three minutes while we opened it up. Yeah. Fantastic. How, so, did you, how did you feel when you came to the end? Because, I mean, we searched, or you searched, some very interesting areas. I mean, I remember water tanks being emptied and, mm. you know, and because you've got all of that, People think that Thurrock is a built-up area. It's not. It's got a huge... It's not. Very rural. Very rural. All along the Thames estuary, you've got the fort, you've got everything there. How did you feel when they said, right, that's it, guys. There's nothing more we can do here. There's no more searches that we can carry on. Yeah, I think because we were there for 10 months and then there was another team there for probably another two, two or three months after that, mopping up areas. We knew that we had done the best possible job we could have done because there was also intel coming in where we had the building site, which was the houses that Stuart had worked um, on. So we knew that as far as we were allowed to, we had done the best possible search we could possibly have done in the area. I mean, we just, there was nowhere we didn't go. You know, we did actually, and as you write, we went down to the fault, we did all the drains down there. In fact, actually, I've probably revisited the Daniel, Daniel Jones case now since 2001 half a dozen times i've gone up and done other searches for it really there was a garage block we went and did yep. we then did the um the drainage system um down by the fault there a couple more times really just to bottom that out where we had a little bit more capability to go actually in there and do them um so even you know getting to retirement we couldn't have done much more really no. And I went over to Wales for April uh, Jones as well, you know, for um, is it Michael Bridger, wasn't it, who murdered April Jones over there and was involved in that. So Thurrock, in comparison to Wales, was easy, really. I mean, you imagine um, trying to search Snowdonia National Park. We could have been there all of my life with 150,000 officers, really. We wouldn't have touched, scratched the surface of what he knew about the area over there. So, but Thurrock was a little bit different, really. It was very much a field and you search the field to the nth degree and you move to the next field and the next field and the next wooded area so we did what we the best we possibly could have done over there because it's it interesting oh yeah i mean it's a fascinating case and and mm -hmm. every tactic i spoke to dick madden the other the night other night um, but we used every possible tactic that was one job where every piece of the jigsaw was was put into place and the only piece that we're missing is the body of daniel jones yeah absolutely. It's the only piece that we're missing because mm. everything else you know we had jarrick we had lowland rescue we had absolutely everybody there we couldn't have done anymore and people from all over the country came to help and it was hot yeah it was really hot and because you guys yeah, it was, yeah there on the on the marshes and you've got adders and all the other stuff so you've got to wear your ppe you had I to wear the, the adders yeah yeah. It, yeah it's just it was just uh they couldn't have got any more water in it was just it was but it was all hands on deck we even had members of the public that were coming out and helping you know it was yeah. so community driven and like i say we never we've never found that poor girl and yeah. you know her mum still to this day you know she she will she will go and she'll do anything to talk about this case while she's still alive she'll do whatever she can and i think that we as officers would do exactly the same mm. we'll do whatever so we i've can. just done i've just done a job with the council really which i've talked to you about in a bit but um that's been very much very similar to that 
but there was a body at the end of the day on that one, really. So I can see the difficulty that person's having when yes. their their loved one has been found or located or they've got a body back. But to actually have one where you never get that, you never get your your son or daughter back, um, I can't imagine it really. So it's funny how you you, you mentioned things there that I for, completely forgot about the adders. It gave me a whole new appreciation of snakes, really. That t- I can tell you now, for the amount of adders we found, they're more scared of you than you are of them. Oh yeah, yeah, they are. yeah. yeah and they'll be gone. Yeah, but little things like that I've completely forgotten about, really. You know, from searching the area. But people don't realise that you search to minutia. You you will you Absolutely. will. T- so an adder may have laid his eggs, her eggs, mm. in in a particular area. And you are literally going through the area with a fine tooth comb. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. So that you know, that the, the, these aren't um, rattlesnakes. I get that, but it was, it was still, it's still something that we had to consider at the time. Mm. Uh, health and safety was wasn't as prevalent as it is now, and people just got on with their stuff, didn't they? But, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it's um, it's so labour intensive. I, I did yeah. I told how much it costs. The investigation cost it was it was a lot of money. Um, I certainly know that much. Yeah, so, in the millions. When and what you, else happened during that period as well, which made it even worse? Well, we had 9-11. Yeah, sitting there in the canteen that day at Tilbury, watching the, always the first plane hit the, yeah. the tower and then going, what's going on here? And then obviously the second one hit and we were going, this isn't right, there's something not quite right here. Yeah. Uh, having just done what is essentially a counter-terrorist search course yeah. and then watching that all taking place, really, that was awful. You know? That was horrendous. And that... And that yeah diverted um a lot of the media attention from what we were doing it did you right yeah um because we you know the, the stuff with danielle was front page news every day um but yeah 9 11 and i remember i was on a i was doing an inquiry with a guy called john wright who was on mit with me and um it, steve wright was on the radio and he came up and said oh planes hit hit uh, one of the towers that mm. thought oh, that's a bit odd and then of course it came up and I just remember going home and watching it all unfold, and it was absolutely horrendous. Yeah. And I've been I've been to New York since, and uh, and I've got friends that were, were there on the day, and it's it's quite even you know that's very impactful as well. Quite impactful, isn't it? Yeah. When you, you you talked about going over to Wales, did you do many many mutual aid roles as a as a pulsar? Yeah, loads. Yeah, so um, I think probably the first big one we did was Commonwealth Games. Um, which we went over to up in uh, Manchester. Um, and that was quite a funny experience, really, because they put us up in, I think it was Salford University campus. <laughs> yeah. it, it was shut It was shut down at the time. And I've got some, some really good memories of that. I've got, the first memory I've got is turning up at the gate, and it was like turning up at a prison, like in America, yeah, with the guard tower, and the guys up there with, like, clashing off, ready yeah. to shoot you. And the, and the guys went, oh, where are you from? I'm from Essex, right? Okay, then just a few rules, really. First of all, um, once you get inside the gate and everything, make sure you show us ID before we let you in any occasion. So don't forget your ID. Second thing is don't go out on your own in the area. Sorry? Yeah, don't don't go out on your own in the area, yeah. The moment I get a sniff, you're police, yeah, you probably won't come back here. And thanks for that bit of information. That was really good of you. Um, I've got a... Um, Steve Kettle, I'm sorry, Bob Kettle. I've got a memory of him in his lime green shorts coming out of his room, um, just in a pair of lime green shorts. It was quite a good memory, that was. Um, and, yeah, just, um, again, that was probably my first um, experience of a CT job, a defensive CT job, where watching the planning taking place. And that was when I'd 
really made the decision that I want to become a police search advisor and actually do the planning side of it really because that really sort of fitted in with my my mindset. Um, so that that was a good time over there really. We didn't do an awful lot of searching over there to be fair with you. We were put in as a night term backup. So what would happen is, is whatever was done during the day, if there was stuff that needed covering that was missed during the day or, or they couldn't keep up, we would be calling on a night term to go and do some. So I think we only really did one big search there, which is the back end, the back stage of the gymnasium, the gymnast section. So we didn't do an awful lot of searching over there, but we did see that planning side of it, which I went, I want to do this. This is this is for me. This is. Um, uh, so um, um, the I've, I've got. Yeah, I was over there for quite com- some considerable time. Um, Holly and Jessica. Um, I've, I've seen some horrible things in my career. I've seen five plane crashes, really, in the aftermath of plane crashes, uh, mainly due to my DVI stroke pulse roll. Uh, the picture of Holly and Jessica in their Man United shop says is still the one thing I, I won't look at. Probably the only thing out of my entire career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that um, still affects me quite, not affects me badly, but makes me a little bit emotional really seeing them two girls in that top really and yeah we, we were very we thought, were very deep inside that really because it was one of our teams that basically found the the, the burnt clothing as well really so it was very close to our hearts that was yeah I, I i we had people from my office um working on that um doing the interviews yeah they interviewed maxine carr um but yeah what a pair of critters they are i mean they yeah. just they do I believe in the death penalty? I think I do on on certain occasions, mate. If I'm really honest with you, that's very controversial. But um, you know, it was people... a difficult one, wasn't it? Really, because they were. Um, I think I think the, the deaths were an accident. I don't I don't know that. But if you know what I mean, not not they weren't meant to happen. Really, I think it just got out of control for them, didn't it? Really, I think it got out of control for Maxine as well as the partner. Yeah. And uh, but it doesn't detract from what they did. Oh no! No, absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah, so so you you go and you become a DVI. I mean, that's a very specialist role, isn't it? Because I know people that have you know have, have done the um, the DVI role. Nick Bracken was the lead out in Thailand, for instance. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he was uh, went on to be a commander in the Met, mm-hmm. and it's a very very difficult but a very rewarding role when you are telling a loved one that you know you there are pieces of the body we've identified your son daughter husband father mother sister it's very rewarding but it's very gruesome as well isn't it yeah it is and um i think i'm of a mindset really that um i have never had a problem with death really and that's going to sound awful but people die what what is the affecting part of that is the fact that why it's happened and why it happened early for some people really um but it's never really bothered me so at the end of the day um if there's a a, a deceased body um and um in, and even if it's been decapitated in some way that never affected me it doesn't bother me the, the gore side of it has never affected me really but my mindset is always about i've done a good job here because i've managed to find that person i've managed to get them back to their loved ones really so there's like that almost that balance really of the gore side of it really and the fact you actually return them to their loved one yeah. so that's always been the positive side of it really um, and i think that's for luckily for me that's probably outweighed the other side of it well that's me uh, as well what, what, what <laughs> we've had to do to get there yeah yeah i think i mean you're absolutely right 
I'm not worried about dying. It's how I'm going to die. That's what. That's the bit. Yeah, that exactly. Um, or when. Mm. You know, I just don't want it yet. But um, but yeah, I don't. I mean, I like you. I spent a, a long, long time um around mortuaries and dead bodies, and uh, and that was part of what we did. And I, I suppose there is detritus in there because we're talking about it now and I can still remember every single post-mortem and death that I've mm. been to and I've been to many dozens you know dozens and dozens of of, of deaths over the years um of all various five five air incidents my daughter's trained to be a pilot at the moment oh you think, think that'd affect me in some way wouldn't you but it doesn't I just think you know it, it, them, them plane crashes or aircraft crashes because some of them are micro lights and things like that it was just unfortunate on that day that happened, really. But I don't ever take away from it that I'm worried about my daughter going out in Florida at the moment and flying around an aircraft, you know. And um, in, in in nine months' time, she'll be flying a Boeing seven three seven around around the world. Is that what she's going to do, commercial airline pilot? Yeah, yeah, commercial airline pilot. Yeah, you know. But so I've got them two sides of that, really. I've got the fact I've been to all these air crashes and seen the aftermath of it. You think that would affect me in some way? No, my daughter's out there and going to be a commercial airline pilot. But it doesn't bother me. You know? Wow. Yeah, and it's it, you know what what will be will be, won't it? I, one of my old PCs, Dave Marta, he now flies a jet too. I mean, what a lovely yeah. job going yeah. on over. When when you um when you attend a a high profile incident, I don't know about you, but I always found it really weird because you you'd step under the barrier, whatever the barrier may look like. Mm-hmm. You'll have the media, you'll have all the onlookers, and you've gone as you've got to the furthest point forward to see exactly what's taken place, which is quite a privileged position to be in. Mm. When you went to your first air collision or aircraft incident, how did you feel about that? I mean, what was the the feelings like as you arrived onto there? Um, The first incident was very close to home because it was the father of a serving police officer. Right. So that for us was, we've got to do the best we possibly can here, really. You know, we always would do anyway, but you know what I mean? There was always that in the background, really, that we've got a problem there. So that was a, um, that was a bit nasty. So I'm not going to talk about that one all because no, no, no. of, of who might be listening. Um, and then I think the second one after that was really a, a restored aircraft that crashed in Rittle, um with um, a pile on board. That one was for me was probably one I've got the most memories of really because of the plane was pretty much intact, um, not intact, but you could see it was a real plane. It wasn't smashed to pieces like some of the others I've been to really. Um, so clearly there was an attempt at a landing there really that just didn't quite go according to plan. So that was quite. But that one there was um, that was probably the most amount of injuries I've probably seen really at one um, uh, because obviously the aircraft was an old aircraft really it was never designed really to have a cocoon around it to, to protect the pilot in any way whatsoever so that's quite nasty um, but yeah I just yeah you are right you know you've got that because you've always you know your, your mindset is really especially when I become a police search advisor and I used to work with a, a soco called Paul Clark I don't know if you remember Paul yeah and Paul and I just gelled really, and we just knew exactly what each other's role were, especially after that air, air, air incident. We knew what each other's role were, and we just knew just to do our own part of it and get on with it really. Um, and so Paul and I worked with that one at Rittle. Um, and I think at that point in time, we, we rubbed a little bit because I wanted to do my job and he wanted to do his job, and there was a little bit of an overlap there really. But 
I sort of came out of that one learning that actually he's got a job to do, I've got a job to do. We just got to make sure they gel together really rather than overlap. Because if you overlap, you start rubbing each other up the wrong way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that was a big learning curve, that one. And that was where really, I suppose, um, working systematically um, to make sure that we recovered absolutely everything, yeah, was paramount in my head. I didn't want the press turning up five minutes after he'd left, yeah, and finding a little bit of tissue or something somewhere, which shouldn't be there, yeah. So we made sure we took absolutely everything away from there, really, because that's what I'd be looking for in it. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. So, um, yeah. Did you did you work? Because we had a period where we had it was literally a murder a week in Essex. In the, it, it was you know from mm. two thousand to two thousand seven, and every week, I mean, we got to know the the pulses really well because we were just yeah. everything was you know full tilt. And I think that it's good because as to say that people don't realise how much work goes into an investigation. No, absolutely not. No. They think it's all like Morse and people just turn up and go within an hour, you're, you're nicked and we've, we've, we've yeah. well, none you... of our chief inspectors or inspectors ever turned up on site that they really like doing Morse. You know, it was all DCs, wasn't it, PCs? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Why yeah. they do that? Why they do that on TV shows? I mean, for God's sake, you know, come and find somebody who can actually give you the reality that the chief inspector pretty much doesn't leave the building. <laughs> and, and doesn't interview the prisoners. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Just, <clears throat> I had this lovely conversation with Colin Sutton, who's who's a great detective, and he was the man that um, detected the murder of uh, Millie Dowler with Levi Belfield. Oh, I mean, absolutely, he's a brilliant guy, um, and the Night Stalker as well. And uh, Martin Clunes played him, and he says that without his team and people to do what he was doing. He will tell you that without the team, he was nothing. He, he he had to have a strong team around him. He had to have people who had good ideas that worked well and did what he was supposed to do. What did what they were supposed to do, and I think that's lost. With, certainly, with some SIOs, they feel that they're the only people involved in an investigation. I've them once. <laughs> I know they're the yeah. only ones with an idea, and they get and they get dragged into this. Um, I don't know self-belief that they're the only people mm. that detect this but actually they've got a whole team of detectives and some very good civilian investigators now yeah absolutely can support them but well, when- i always found that as a police search advisor really that you know if i'm coming along to you and giving you some advice to do something yeah, you need to listen to my advice really but i'm not going to mention any name but there are certain characters out there yeah really that thought they knew better than me well good luck to you but you know a good example of that is um we did a search years and years ago for a, a, a gent whose name I've completely forgotten who went missing um, down in uh, Lakeside area. Um, and the last time he'd been used, he'd try and use his boots card to try and get some cash out of an auto till, really. Because he had a bit of dementia, really. He didn't realise he couldn't get it out. Yeah. And he'd gone missing. We, we searched for him for a couple of weeks, I think. And, and so when, when I'm saying we, I mean the search team did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't actually involved in that one. Um, and didn't find him. And and that was probably sometime a little while after Daniel Jones, really, when they made decisions in them days that we couldn't have these protracted searches or inquiries nowadays. Yeah, you had to have a, a cut-off limit to them. Um, anyway, a few years, years later, um, probably about 2017, 18, probably just before COVID, um, some workers down in Lakeside on the, on, on, the, on the lead road down into Lakeside 
were clearing some drainage systems and found a skull um, up against a fence. So my colleague went down there to do the assessment of it, gave some advice, and the advice was, was they just chose a cube of area to go and search for the rest of the, the body. Yeah. So what we normally do is a couple of days into search, we'd normally get somebody with some experience to go down and do a, like a, what they call a peer, a peer um, review of it. Go down and have a look at what's happening. And sometimes you can get some ideas that come out of that that happens all well. And I went down and I was very lucky that it, over my career, I visited lots and lots of um, scientific seminars, really. And one lady, um, Professor Alexander, I'd written about scavenging and how a body that, that starts decomposing, you have badges and foxes and everything would interact with that body. Um, and I remember all the information about that. So I went down there and said, actually, where the skull is located here, you've got this, this slope that leads down to the A13. Badgers would always take a body downhill. Why aren't we searching that hill down the bottom there? Wow. And they turned around to me and said, um, well, no, we just done a square. I said, well, we, can't, we, don't, we don't just choose an area. We choose an area based around the information that's coming in and the facts and everything else. Yeah? So A13 is a boundary where the badgers won't, or the, the foxes won't drag the body across the road. This is cars going along. Yeah? So there's a boundary there, the bottom of the hill. You've got the boundary, which is um, for the lakeside road. You've got a bridge at the other end, and then you've got the fence, obviously, where the skull was found. You've now got a search area, but why have we cut it down to this when actually it should be this? So the lad who was there doing it, I get that, yeah, but the boss has basically said, doesn't want all that done. I can't be really bothered with doing that. That's pretty much what he said. So anyway, I phoned him up and said, look, we need to be doing this. No, we don't want to do that because we're going to have to put a single track road closure in there because of the traffic. I said, I really think you ought to be doing it because I think that's where the, where, where the body could be. That's the most viable area for it. We're not doing it. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to write it all up and send it over to you. Can you just respond to that, your agreement or your disagreement? So I wrote it up. Clearly didn't read it because he replied, yeah, Paul, I agree with you. Fantastic. But I put that slope in there. Where do we find the, the rest of the body? Laying there on that slope. Yeah. So again, not blowing my own trumpet. I'm just using my experience there of what I'd learned over the years yet and they should be listening to that experience to say, yeah, actually, I see what you're saying there, really, and we'll do that. Um, but that was a very difficult character I worked with for quite a few years, really, that looked down his nose um, and really didn't want to take advice from somebody that was just a PC at the time. So um, I had a lot of struggles there, but you, but you, and, uh, which is a shame. But it is a shame, but you need to have your advisors. Your advisors are there for a very, very good reason. Yeah. If you're a tactical firearms commander and your TA says, I wouldn't do it like that, boss, and guess what? Someone gets shot because you've gone against mm. what you, what the TA said. Yeah. You're the one who's gripping the rail because they've, mm, they've written it up accordingly. Mm. Um, did you did work you? on the Natasha Coombs job? Oh, yeah, yeah. Horrendous. I was the FLO on it. Horrendous. Yeah, so horrendous job. I went over and did uh, the house search over at um, Dovercourt. She was at, she was in Dovercourt. She was a girl that struck yeah. by the train. In, in train, May. yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, the briefing I got given for that um, when I first picked it up was the fact that they wouldn't be on the railway line. She wouldn't be on the railway line because all the trains have got, do you remember this? All the trains yeah. have got basically a collision avoidance system in front of them, yeah? An alarm would have gone off in the cab. So I took that down in my notes. I still remember my notes years later having that written in there that she wouldn't have been hit by a train because of that reason. And it was about two days later when we had a briefing and somebody went, there's no such thing as that. We've never had one of them things That's before. Good. And this person had made this thing up, hadn't they? 
Yeah. And that's when we put the helicopter helicopter up over the railway line, did that search along there. Because um, obviously Essex Police would never search railway lines. That would always be delegated down to the BTP search team. And they pulled um, it short. I always remember that little nugget in there. They, they, they pulled it short. They pulled it short by about 50 yards. Mm. And, and we didn't find a body for two weeks. No. Because the... Because the um, BTP would only go so far. They they say if you say half a mile, five hundred yeah. meters, whatever, um, they wouldn't go any further than that. And she was like fifty meters beyond that, been struck mm-hmm. by the train, and and all we recovered were, were body parts. I mean that was that was the reality. Yeah. Very very sad time. I remember that vividly. Getting on the plane, going off on my family holiday, mm-hmm. um, and we'd found her the day before. And I should have been off on holiday on that on that day but didn't fly until the sunday and the front page of newspapers you know her, her, her face was all over that very very did mum go down there a while later yeah mum went down there and took her own life um in exactly the same spot yeah yeah which made it even worse didn't it really yeah absolutely i mean it's terrible but um but yeah i mean listen we've, we've worked on some really interesting jobs when you think about mm-hmm. it they'll go down in the annals of essex police history because and we've yeah. been lucky because some people will never ever have the opportunity to do the things that we did in those in those particular investigations. But what what is the best one that you ever worked on? I mean, Daniel was probably the most intense, but what's the best one yeah. where, you, where you found the nugget of evidence that actually solved the crime? Have you got one? I think the IED, the IED uh, down at um, um, Daniel Jones was probably one of the best ones in the fact that that's what we train for and you and you can be a searcher for 50 years and never find an IED really so yeah. that as a, as, a, as a point in time um, was amazing really um, I think where we've actually found somebody based on the information because I did my police search advisor course in 2008 and I can tell you now it's four weeks of the hardest course I've ever had to do really and I then stayed on for another two weeks and did one on missing persons Um, and again I've never been an expert on searching for missing persons but I was the person the go-to person because I had such a lengthy career in it and I had all them little bits and nuggets of information here that I built up so every time a missing person come in, I'd always be going, have you thought of doing this? Or have you thought about doing that? So I think probably when I, my information led to finding missing persons, and I, so I can't really remember any specifics, but it happened a few times now, was probably the highlights, really, when I thought, because of my thought process, I'm thinking outside the box. There was a, there was a, there was a missing person down in um, Pitsy area, so he was a, um, a drug addict or a, a user that for some strange reason, the benefits officer decided to give him £1,500 in one lump sum for some reason, yeah? <laughs> and you as, you as an ex-detective would realise, yeah, that if you see a £100 going out every single day, yeah, in £20 bits, so £20, £20, he's going out buying £20 bags all day long, isn't he, really? Yeah. And he hemorrhaged that in about three days. Anyway, he disappeared. And when we started searching, we actually started finding a trail of his clothing. And we're thinking, this is really weird. And then we started looking at um, the the um, scientific side of that, really. Somebody on cocaine, yeah, if they're using an awful lot, yeah, will overheat. And actually, they will start taking the clothing off. So that's the hypothesis that we came up with between us. And then I looked at the, I plotted it all on a map, and I plotted the route of it all. And there was one little area that led over a railway bridge where there was no protection other than a swing gate. 
and led into what's the is it not Tyler Country what, Park down there? Tyler Country Park, yeah. Yeah, into there. So we called up and said we want to search into oh, I said I want to search into there because I've got a feeling he could have gone into that area there. The the trail of items led to that area. And the, the the local commander wouldn't let us search because at that point in time they were looking for financing to do some some um what do you call it, not refurbishment, but some boosting that area up for the public. And they didn't want front pages that, you know, a person being found deceased in the area. So I luckily pushed that one as hard as I could. And I had a really good uh, uh, SIO working with me. So I actually, in fact, actually what then happened was the SIO and I went to do a wreck in there and we found him. Oh, and he basically walked, yeah, he'd walked in there and he basically uh, ended up in a, in a, an area of water and, and was, uh, was um, in there. And then we had to get, because I was water trained as well, we had to get a water team down there to come and recover him out of there. So that was quite a good one, really. And the fact that that was pushing that you really should be doing this, yeah, because I get this, not gut feeling, but all the intelligence and the information is he's probably going to be in there, really, and you should be searching it. They and do. just pushing them a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you need to sometimes. You need to push them. Mm. They do a really good breakfast in there at what time? <laughs> 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 we never got that far. Yeah. When, you, when you came to the end of your service, yeah. were there things that you had left undone that you wish you'd have done within within the, your police service? No, not in a million years. And it got better than that because um, I retired in the July. And I can't remember if it was... February, March, I was just planning for, we had to do relicensing every year. So 130 people, we had to relicense and we did that all in-house. And I was in the early stages of planning that. Um, and then I, I got a telephone call from Tasha. Um, yeah. Yep. Uh, who was in, um, oh, I use now. Yeah, but the other one, Oxfam, there's, a, there's a, a, a regional one where they supply all the resources for regional jobs. Oh, okay. It's called that. So she was working for the Essex lead for that. And I got my mountain bike in the middle of nowhere and my telephone went, I thought it was Tasha, I'll answer that one. So I said, hello, Paul, um, do you want to go to Cornwall? And I said, sorry? So basically the pulser down there um, has um, got a bit unwell and has had to come off the job and they want a, a, a pulser down there to go and um, look after one of, the, one of the sites down there. I said, um, I don't know, I'm planning this course, I've got everything. Heading towards retirement, um, and I want to do this last. So anyway, I phoned my skipper up and said, "Look, I've been off. Go, mate. Leave it with us. We'll sort the rest of it out. But you go because that'd be worth doing." So I done the G7 conference for about three months. Wow. Um, and basically, what they do there is they have a second a conference area, which is set up duplicate to the original one. So if anything happens to the original conference area, the whole thing can be airlifted, moved to my one. And plonk there and it'll run exactly the same. So they even cook the food at the same time at the second one as they do at the first one. So if it gets airlifted in the middle of lunch, they'd land and the food's all being cooked there for that as well. Who knows? So I got the second venue, yeah. Um, so that was that bottomed everything out for me. That was like, I've done it now, you know. I've been invited down to call for the G7 conference, um, work down there. The respect was unbelievable, really. They just knew that I could just get on with it and do it, really. So that was brilliant, really. And that pretty much led me up to the end um, before I retired. Um, so that, that was really, really good. And I really enjoyed that. Um, hard hard days. Oh, yeah. 18-hour days. Um, and then 
three weeks or two weeks before um, we were due to go live and we were all putting our plans in. At this point, I probably had a 50-page plan of how we were going to do it, really, and, and, and search whole venue. Chief Inspector phoned me up from down in Cornwall and he said, I've just let you know, Paul, I've decided because of the financial cost of these resources required to do your search, yeah, we're not going to bother doing it. And um, I went, I've just spent two months on this. <laughs> he said, but what we'd like you to do is we'd like you to pick up all the other searches that come in during that period of time. So if any others come in, like, for example, um, um, one of the royals was coming down there and she was going to go off to um, visit a venue. A last-minute decision. We wanted to we pick them jobs up. But as it happened, what we did in the end was we had um, – a choke point where everybody going into the main venue had to go through um, a search regime for all their property, everything themselves, their property, everything that was going into the G7 conference, yeah. And I picked that up in the end and ran that for the whole show. Um, so pretty much anybody who entered the main venue, yeah, went through my search regime, which is quite a bit of pressure, isn't it, really? Yeah. If one person gets through with something on them, it's my responsibility, really. So... That was quite good. So that was my, that was the end of, that was, that crowns the end of my career, especially for search. Because at that point, from 2013, 2015 onwards, I was in charge of search for the force. You know, I was in the lead for it all and, and, and did pretty much everything for it. You handed everything back though. You, you know, you've, you've given your warrant card back. You've just, mm -hmm. you know, you've, you've had a really nice career, nice police service. Mm -hmm. How did you feel as you walked out into the sunset? Well, on the last day, um, they said, don't bother coming into work on your last day, really, until later on. Have a lay and come in later. And I called my wife up and I said, um, I'm going to go in now. She goes, no, don't go in now. She goes, um, wait until 2 o'clock because I'm going to come down there or something. No, no, she didn't tell me she was going. She said, don't go until 2 o'clock or 1 o'clock or something. So anyway, eventually I got in the car and I drove down there and my wife was there. She, she sneaked in as well. And there was loads and loads and loads of people there, really. Um, because I was a search officer, I, I, I was humbled by the gifts they'd bought me. But because I was a search officer, they hid them all around Boreham. So I <laughs> can't find them all. Which is mildly amusing. Brilliant. Really. Um, and then obviously um, I handed everything in. I handed my laptop, my phone, my warrant card and everything in really. And shook lots of hands and said goodbye to lots of people really. And I walked out the door and my thought process beforehand would have been I was going to be emotional. I was going to be concerned about leaving. I've never looked back from the moment I walked out the door. Just didn't look back. I don't know why that is. I just, I think I was always worried about leaving that job rolling in the hands of somebody that wasn't sort of going to live up to what I, I perceived as my own standards, but I had. Um, I just didn't. I, I just thought it's up to you now. Yeah. And and uh, an old friend of mine who sadly passed away, Dick Dick Mason. He always said that yeah, in the police. Yeah. Remember Dick? He, yeah. He always said that being in the police service is, is like having your hand in a bucket of water. And as yeah. soon as you take your hand out of the bucket, when the ripples have gone, most people don't even know your hand's been in it. And no. and, and that's the that's the police service. Mm -hmm. So what did you do then? You you had a sabbatical, didn't you? You had some time off. You you played a bit of guitar, I would imagine, and you did all your yeah. all the stuff that you wanted to do, but then you got bored. Yeah. Well, no, I needed to, um, we, we'd already planned to knock the back of the house down and rebuild a nice extension on there. And, and um, so I've got a mate of mine that came in and gave me a hand with that. And then what I did was I reciprocated that by giving him a hand 
and I went up to a hotel in Colchester and I basically laid all the decking there for them there, which oh. I, I put in three and a half thousand stainless steel screws, yeah, and, oh, cool. and an awful lot of hardwood in there, and I absolutely loved it. Out in the sun, um, yeah, really enjoyed doing that. And then I took, I, summer arrived, or summer was already here, so I thought, I'm going to have summer off, it's going to be great, but the novelty of having all that time to yourself wears off after a while. So I applied for a part-time job with um, Culture City Council, a job come up, and I applied for that for three days. And this is where it got really, really quite interestingly funny, to be fair with you, because first of all, I had no idea how to write a, a CV, no idea how to fill an application form in, and every application form you ever see out there yeah, talks about qualifications. And I was like, I haven't got any. I left school with no qualifications or nothing worth mentioning. Um, and um, I've got no certificate since that are viable on the outside world. So I, I phoned up the HR department at Cultures Council, and, and I've got to say to you now, they are the best group of people that I think I've ever worked with HR-wise, yeah? They are there to help you, not to hinder you and everything. I'm not going to mention who has hindered in the past, but certainly Culture City Council, yeah, were brilliant <laughs> in helping. They just wanted you to do well. Yes. So had a conversation with them and they said, don't worry about the qualification section. Just leave that blank yet. Yeah. Just talk about yourself and what you've done in your in your career. So sell yourself like that. I and mean, we won't be bothered about qualifications. So I did. Um, got a telephone call and got an interview. Or for an, uh, an online system, got an interview. Um, I was sort of told in the background after a little conversation I had that three people had got an interview out of 12. So I was quite pleased about that, really chose my time slot, went into the interview, and uh, during that interview, basically, felt that it had gone quite well. I got a telephone call 20 minutes later saying, really sorry, Paul, you haven't got the job. Somebody that's a little bit better than you, because they know the job description better than you, has got it just over you. They've just picked you at the post. So I was like, right, okay then. I got another telephone call an hour after that from a lady in um, who runs a team in town centre, city centre. So Paul, your application and your, your interview has been sent over to me. I want you to come and work for me. Come and meet me tomorrow and I'll chat you about a new jo a job we've got for you. Come wow. and work for me. So I went and saw Sam the following day, yeah, and I didn't have to interview again. She just said, Paul, the job's yours. I want, you, I want you to come and work for me. Brilliant. So I got a job. Anyway, I then found out who picked me at the post. It was a gentleman who you will know quite well called Steve Gibbs. Oh, gives a yeah. Yeah. He was my tutor when I joined up. No. Did he teach you how to do the bodybuilding? Yeah. So he got my job. <laughs> so I got my job. I got the job over the top of me, which is the most bizarre thing ever, yeah. really. And to be fair with you, we've just worked on a project where I was the lead um, project manager for it, and he came in as my gopher, which is even better, really, because I've got to boss him around a bit. Oh, that's, that's a nice feeling, yeah. Yeah, yeah I know, Gibbsy. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the project that you did relates to the the Knife Angel, doesn't it? That, and, of course, in our time in the police, in in Colchester in particular, there'd been high-profile stabbings, hadn't there? Which, yeah, big time, yeah. Did you work on any of those? Yeah, so probably the last one I dealt with as a police search advisor in Essex before I went to Cornwall for the G7 conference was a stabbing basically it was a american girl that um i think she was over at university that was dating a uh, um uh, an english fella um she didn't want to live in england anymore and decided to go back to america he didn't want her to go so basically uh, he murdered her uh, for a stabbing so that was probably the last job i actually dealt with really 
Um, and I can't, I couldn't count the amount of stabbings I've dealt with over the years um, as a police social advisor anyway, really. Um, I'm not, I, couldn't, I couldn't count them. Tell me about the Knife Angel and the implications of having it in the city and the work that had to go on in order to get the angel there. Yeah, so um, Sam, who's my manager, or my manager at the time, had always wanted to get the Knife Angel as a sculpture to Colchester because it is magnificent, really. I don't think she'd ever thought about it as what his message was per se, but she wanted that sculpture here, really. She just loved the look of it. She'd seen it before, so she planned on it. Um, she knew my background of planning, you know, I've, I've, I've planned for presidents coming to the country on multiple occasions now. Yeah, President Trump twice, um, Obama uh, once. Um, so she knew that I could plan jobs and she asked me if I'd project manage it. So we had a chat about it and the only slot available, or the nearest slot available was for October of this year. And this was in June that she'd come up with the decision. Wow. And the race was against another council up north, and um, it was whoever could get the deposit into uh, the British Armworks quickly got it. So we managed to get our deposit in and signed off by our directors um, to pay the deposit. Um, so she then said to me, would you mind... Uh, no, she said, would you mind doing it in the background? We've got a, a, an ex-inspector who works as our operations manager, had a meeting with Sam and said, you need somebody to on this full time because it's going to be a big job, big project to put together. So um, that was the best decision that was made probably because Sam came back to me and said, Paul, would you like to take it on full time? And I said, absolutely, I would. It'd be fantastic. So I started, begin I went on holiday for a couple of weeks, then I started at the beginning of July. And I put together a set of dictates that I wanted to put in place. Um, the first one is it wouldn't cost the council taxpayer any money at all. So we were going to fund it via um, funding streams in some way. The second point is really that it wasn't a council project. It was a community project that the council facilitated. That was another thing. And I put a load of other dictates in there as well. And then I got together with the bosses and said, look, this is what I, my plan is. They said, Paul, you just go off and do what you need to do. And you go and plan it yourself. Yeah, we'll leave you. We'll meet up once a week, once every two weeks, really, just to go through it. Uh, but it's your job. You you get on with it, really, and do it. Um, so I probably, I think in the first two to three weeks of the project, I think I've had, um, made over 800 lines of communication, either via phone calls or emails or Teams meetings with people. Wow. Because I was contacting everybody I could think of from domestic violence to um, any charities I could think of, to get in contact with them. Did you want to get involved in this um, uh, and work through that way? So the first month was that. And then uh, the um, director basically, or the ops manager basically said, um, I'm going to give you somebody as a gopher, which was Steve Gibbs. <laughs> um, so I said to Steve, I said, look, can I leave you in charge of all the funding? because the funding um, documents you have to write are quite um, intensive, really. Can I leave you with all the funding and I'll get on with all the rest of it and that'll work quite well because he only works part-time anyway. So Steve went off and done the funding uh, and I planned the whole of the um, the event. And three, for anybody out there who's going to do it, three months isn't long enough. Really? Um, you, need, you need six months of planning, really, to be fair with you. Um, 
it didn't help us in the fact that the school holidays were halfway between. So all our engagements with the schools to do workshops with them to teach them about not carrying blades, you can't go to the schools a week before the summer holidays because they're shutting down and you can't get hold of them a week or two weeks afterwards because they're rebuilding the school up and getting up and going again. So we lost the whole of the summer holidays another three weeks after that. So that was a battle really to get the schools involved. I was very lucky that I um, was doing a project with Sir Bob Russell um, yep. in the background. So me, me and him were on communication terms and we were chatting about the Knife Angel one day and he said, do you do realise that I had some quite heavy involvement? This leads back to a comment you made earlier on, Paul. But I had some heavy involvement in this years like, um, years ago with a lady called Anna Oksogka. Um, So basically what happened, Anne approached Sir Bob as a MP at the time and said that the sentencing laws around knife crime were not up to up to scratch with the gun crime laws that Tony Blair was talking about yep. at the time. So they got together a select committee and Adam Bob basically managed to get sentencing laws changed for knife crime back in them days. Wow. So I contacted Anne and said to her what I was doing. She said, this is brilliant, Paul. And she started to work together with me. So I think formulated a plan really that when we did the workshops, it'd be nice to see if we got the education team from uh, Police and Fire and Crime Commissioner to come in and do the factual ed- education. And Anne comes in and does the emotional side of it. Now, Anne lost her son in 2005. Wesley Ogger at Grinson's shops. Yes. He was stabbed by somebody while he was waiting at the ATM um, by uh, a couple of brothers. So Anne very quickly got involved in basically helping me out with them educational side of it as well, but also her experience. Um, I also spoke to Sir Bob about basically, basically getting involved as well. So when I had, when I planned the civic opening ceremony, I did like a bit of a timeline because for Anne, she visited the Knife Angel when it was first being built and she engraved her son's name on one of the blades on the back of it. Oh. But also through her charity, Knife Crimes Dog, she contacted all of, I think it was about 250 of people that have been working with her for her charity that had also lost their loved ones. And she invited them also to come down there and basically engrave knives on there as well. So I did an awful lot of work with Anne around that and getting her involved and telling her story. We interviewed Anne, we did, um, we got um, a council basically were short on staff. So they basically got a, a short term a retired journalist to come in basically help me out with all the comms side of it. Um, and so Carol was absolutely brilliant doing that. Um, she interviewed Anne and, and done what they call Anne's story. So if you go onto the council website now with Anne's story on there, all about her involvement with it. And, and the project just grew really. Um, there was lots of reluctance in people wanting to get involved initially. Um, but I managed to talk a lot of people around and I managed to get an awful lot. I think it has 75 booked volunteers to come down and work at the Knife Angel. I wrote a briefing sheet for them so they knew what the Knife Angel was all about. And if I come from a charity, um, I like the next chapter, which deals with domestic violence. The dictate to them was they talk about the Knife Angel first and then they can talk about their own project. But that's the important part of it. So... The time came for it to be delivered. We um, it cost us twenty one thousand pounds to de- to get to get it to the culture. Um, seven and a half of that was delivery and installation and, and removal, and seven and a half of that we paid for overnight security, because you're going to get some idiot in town that's going to oh, want to come sure. down there, not not particularly damage it or anything, but 
do something stupid. So we made sure we got security in place. We didn't think CCTV was a good enough option. Um, and it far exceeded my expectations for it. We, I'd done a, a sign-on sheet for all the volunteers. Everybody went down there. So each day they'd sign on with them and they'd basically do a little tally chart of people they'd actively communicated with. Yes, not just people they'd gone up and spoken to, but they'd actively communicated about the message about the knife angel and they kept a little tally chart. That hit 7,000 people in the four weeks that we had conversation with, which is, imagine that's a huge amount of people over that time. It is. Probably visitors wise, 100,000, I reckon, easily. Word of mouth was the biggest piece of social media. Yeah, as the first week went past, people were coming down, and my daughter's told me about this, my mum's told me about this, my grandma's told me about this. We had to come and visit. I had a couple come from New Zealand to visit. That's how they told me initially. But what they were actually doing, they were doing Land's End to John O'Groats on push bikes over six week periods, visiting monuments around uh, the, the country. And they did an active diversion to come across to Colchester to see the knife angel there on their Such push bikes. Diversion? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, they were doing a week, six weeks from Land's End to John O'Groats. Yeah. So they were doing a wiggly journey up, up, up the um, country. But they did a diversion across to there. Um, we had people coming from the other side of London to come and visit us because it was the closest it had been. It's a phenomenal success. And I, and I wrote in my final piece for the report I had to write, I wrote a 50-page report at the end of it, and I wrote in the final piece, yeah, if one person has got the message during this four-week piece period not to carry a knife, then it's been a success, really. Um, so, yeah. That's fantastic, mate. I, I, and you should be really proud of your efforts. And, and you know... Thankfully, Colchester identified the skills that you've got in order to carry this out. I mean, it's a it's a fantastic, and I'm glad that Gibbsy was there to make the tea. Yeah, because in the 40 years that I've known him, I don't ever recall him making me a cup of tea. If I'm perfectly honest with you, but uh, well, I'm I'm going to be completely personally honest with you as well, really. One, he never made me a cup of tea either. <laughs> two, because, two, because I bake a lot. He, he ate an awful lot, lot of my cakes. So, <laughs> yeah. Today, you've been absolutely captivating, and I'm really grateful for your time. You've exceeded many of you know, my, my thoughts around this interview because, you know, I don't ever look people up. I just interview them and I find out what they're all about. And you've been absolutely brilliant. But before we conclude, I'm going to ask you if you've got anything you'd like to add, alter or correct in relation to today's statement. No, I think basically, uh, thank you very much for that. Um, captivating, I'm not sure about that, but thank you anyway. Um, what I will say is, and I think it's probably a good thing, is if you're leaving um, the police service to go and get a job out there, yeah, I can tell you now there is work out there for anybody um, you've all got skills. You don't need qualifications, really. Um, just basically be yourself, really. Write down what you've done over your career. Yeah, that's good enough to get a job in most locations, really. Yeah, they will, people will snap you up. Wise words, sir. I'm going to wish you a Merry Christmas and a beautiful New Year. And I hope that um, next year is as successful for you as the last one has been. Well, I've got a new job coming up, hopefully. Um, so I'm waiting for a call on that one. A new role, by the way. Oh, so I'm waiting for that one to come up. I should find out in the next week or so. And, um, yeah, moving on from there. Well, it's a Merry Christmas, mate. And um, I look forward to catching up with you soon. The kettle is always on, by the way. Thank you very much. And, uh, honestly, I was a bit worried about doing this, really. But um, I'm not a great speaker. But I've actually really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs>
Good. I'm, I'm glad that you have. I think most people do enjoy the experience and that you've been brilliant.